refuse to impose it on equally devout Christians and Muslims and Jews. Abortion is legal in about half the states, illegal in half the states. These are the confessions of American Christians repenting of American Christianity. This is the world we made. Everybody, this is World We Made, Season 3, the long-awaited Season 3. I am Nathan. I am your humble and obedient host. We've got Jake right there. Hey. Pastor, who's a master of Evansville. <laughs> and we've got Benjamin J. Solzer, the preacher who's a teacher of Evansville. <laughs> and Hi. Ben or Jake, I'm going to need you to introduce our very special guest star today. It's Pastor Tim Bailey. Hello. Hello. He needs no other title. He needs no other title. No. Pastor is a master of nothing. Nothing. Nothing any. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah so yeah. this is a post postmortem mortem appearance, which Nathan is very fond of having loved to watch horror movies as a child. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I was, um, talking to the dead today. <laughs> and he just put his phone on do not disturb. Yep. And I, and I want to say that I already did my phone. Yeah. Well, one of us is a professional podcaster. <laughs> I want to get your perspective, Tim, because you are now how old? 68. 68. What has been your observations of the last 68 years of abortion? What was your perception? Because you were alive before Roe v. Wade, and now you're alive after mm-hmm. Roe v. Wade. And so what was your perception of abortion growing up? What was your perception of your parents' perception and your generation? And how have you kind of tracked that over the years well there used to be something in america called shame in the church and when i was in high school i hitchhiked back and forth between bartlett and elgin and bartlett and wheaton and wheaton and elgin and hitchhiking back then as a young man who was pretty good looking i would get picked up by homosexual men all the time There was always a heavy burden of shame those men carried as they propositioned me. And there was a horror about homosexuality that was very, very helpful 
in, for instance, keeping me from falling into that bondage. One never knows when the homosexual is about. He may appear normal, and it may be too late when you discover he is mentally ill. Really, at that time, abortion was maybe even more a matter of shame. It was something that you didn't mention. People talk about homosexuality coming out of the closet. They do that without ever considering why it was in the closet in the first place. It's an old Chesterton thing. You have to make a distinction between reformation and deformation. And where it concerns abortion, they not only brought it out of the closet, they made it a constitutional right. It was utter hypocrisy judicially. It was utter hypocrisy in terms of the plain meanings of words. And so really not just abortion, but birth control were hidden at the time. Nobody talked about them. It was not that people didn't use them but you didn't talk about it. And what people think about sodomy today is they think, well, finally, people don't have to suffer the shame. But the fact is, people that are using their body parts in the wrong places are always going to suffer shame because God loves us. And when it comes to killing our little ones in the womb, we're always going to suffer shame. It doesn't matter what psychologists or sociologists tell us about whether or not there's guilt. God is not mocked, and whatever man sows, that will he also reap. And so when I was a child, there were things I can remember finding out that at the camp that I went to, which was an university camp as a child up in Canada, I remember finding out that, the well, I shouldn't be too specific about this, but that he was molesting boys at the camp. And... These things were simply not talked about. Well, that was what abortion was until after Roe v. Wade. Well, after Roe v. Wade, the church was so compliant and law-abiding that the church immediately just said, well, then abortion's fine. And so all evangelicalism, the Roman Catholics a little ahead, all evangelicalism was like, well, it's legal. That's all there is to say about it. As a matter of fact, my father-in-law published a book in the early days of Tyndale House Publishers And it was a scholarly book. It was very unusual for Tindy House. They published a scholarly book called Birth Control and the Christian. Hmm. And that book is just filled with what is indicative of the level of thought about birth control, about abortion at that time, which was really nobody was against it. Nobody was against the slaughter of the unborn in the womb of the mother. That's my introduction to abortion. So big picture, the question that I want to answer today, you could argue, I guess, that the church should have been ready for this. I mean, you could even argue that the culture should have been ready for this. So why were we caught with our pants down? Like, why didn't people just say no to Mullick knocking at their door? I mean, these are big questions. So maybe we should start with your personal experience, Tim, and then kind of work our way outward. I had a very unusual child rearing because I was the son of about the only man in evangelicalism who would regularly pop the hot air of other leaders. So he was a combination of a gadfly and a prophet. And so I grew up not trusting authority because my father didn't trust authority. I remember him being very fearful about Richard Nixon as a president because Richard Nixon was about authority, law and order, all these other things. Evangelicalism trusted any authority. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook, 
Well, I'm not a that was at a time where our dear I friend got. Hudson Armitage was president of Wheaton. We should say Wheaton College in Illinois being the epicenter of mainstream evangelicalism at the time. Like Billy Graham graduated from there. If anybody doesn't know, Tim comes from the, the creme de la creme of the mid-century evangelical world. That's uh, Wheaton is like the headquarters of Protestant American Christianity back then. I just want to make sure we're not leaving anybody behind who doesn't know that. So that's Wheaton College and Hudson Armanding is the president. And he required ROTC training hmm. of the men at Wheaton. And my father wrote against it publicly in the same church. They were good friends. And my dad and I and my sister and our cousins were absolutely opposed to the Vietnam War. Absolutely opposed to it. Now, if I were to go back, I'm not sure I'd be the same way. But you can imagine how growing up in a home where my father's opposing Wheaton, going to Wheaton College Church, where the president sits right in front of us in the pews, and he writes against ROTC being required, being mandatory. Well, when we hit Roe v. Wade, we're not at the same place that evangelicalism is. Mm. But we're also not at the same place that all the countercultural dudes leading the 60s revolution are either. And it was a very, very interesting time because I remember Hudson Armitage taking my dad out for lunch and explaining to him he shouldn't have a beard because having a beard, he was identifying with the 60s rebels in Haight-Ashbury. Mm. Well, my father was not even barely resembling Hate Ashbury and first the beatniks and the hippies, any of that stuff. But Hudson Armitage was loved my dad and wanted my dad to realize he shouldn't have a beard. And of course, that was a time when nobody had a beard. So you hit the issue of abortion. You hit Roe v. Wade. You hit the compliance of evangelicals, first with birth control, then with the killing of the unborn in the womb. And it was like there wasn't even a ripple. There wasn't even a speed bump. There was nothing. The only people there was anything from in concern or opposition were the Roman Catholics. Hmm. There's absolutely nothing from evangelicals. It wasn't until Chick Coop, C. Everett Coop, the Surgeon General, he wasn't at the time, and Francis Schaeffer went around the country with their dog and pony show. They had a movie series and they had lectures. Traditionally, in Western culture, the life of a human individual has been regarded as very special. The fully developed view of the sanctity of human life in the West did not come from nowhere, but came directly from the Judeo-Christian consensus, which was the framework in the West for centuries. It wasn't until that that Based there began to be any awareness be that abortion might not be, be fine in the evangelical church. I know it sounds astounding. I remember going to Gordon Conwell in what? It would have been 1979. And listening to a lecture by the man that I loved and took all the theology I could from, Roger Nicole. I remember in his lecture him talking about that your view on abortion would be a product of your view on the ensoulment of the person. And so if you saw the soul as being given by God through this process right at the beginning, at conception, then this. But if you saw it being a function of quickening or breath, then it would be okay. And I remember going up to him afterwards and saying to him, Dr. Nicole, if your view is that the soul comes, say, at the end of the first trimester, are you sure of that? And if you're not sure of it, as a Christian, would you not avoid abortion with horror? Because 
you don't know when the soul is placed in the man. And Dr. Nicole, to his credit, from that point on, was adamantly opposed to abortion. Wow. Whereas Stephen Charles Mott, who was the ethicist at Gordon Conwell, had a book published by Harvard on biblical ethics. I went up to him and I asked him whether he was opposed to abortion. He said no. And I said, why? And he said, well, I'm not sure when life begins. I think it begins at the end of the first trimester. And I said, are you sure? And he said, well, no. And I said, well, then why would you go ahead and abort a child if you're not sure whether that child's living or dead or pre-living? And he said, well, did it, did it, did it. I said, don't we as Christians have an obligation to know before we take a life? And he then said to me, he didn't change at all. He looked at me and he said, well, he said, I'm not comfortable with that kind of evangelical casuistry about abortion. Mm. <laughs> so he just threw a bunch of big useless words at you that nobody knows. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I could talk a lot about different people at different times. I do remember C. Everett Koop and Schaefer. I remember Schaefer saying when I went to their film series and lectures in Denver that year, like 78, 79. Well, let me, let me just interrupt because I want to make sure our listeners, again, understand all the chess pieces on the board here. So we already kind of said it, but C. Everett Koop was a pediatric surgeon and a public health administrator who, who would later become Surgeon General under Reagan. And Francis Schaeffer was a really important Christian apologist and theologian who kind of, I guess you could say he stood outside the bubble that Tim is describing and was prophetic about where the culture was going and where Christianity was going. So anyway, they had a lecture on abortion. You went to it in 78 or 79. And I remember Schaefer saying they'd just come from Chicago that they had called, I think the number was 17 evangelical leaders in Wheaton. And this was at the time where Schaefer was one of the top five respected evangelical leaders in the country. And they called 17 leaders in Wheaton. And that, at that time, that's where all the leaders of evangelicalism were, the publishers, the missions, the, mm -hmm. you know, let alone Wheaton College. And he said he could not get one of them to come to their film series. And what he was saying was, evangelists don't give a rip about the unborn children. They don't care. So was it hard-heartedness? Was it ignorance? Was there something good or innocent about it? It was just so outside of people's thinking that they just... Why is that where we were at when this issue hit? Okay, let me stop us here. Record scratch sound. You're probably wondering how we got here. So let's hit pause on Tim's answer to the question and fill in some details about how abortion even became a thing in the 20th century. Like, let's go back and trace the history of violence, if you will, a little bit so we can get all the way up to the point where the church had a choice about how to deal with it. Like, how did we even get there? So very briefly, I want to do the history of child sacrifice leading into the 20th century and up to Roe versus Wade. You guys want to help me out? Uh, sure. Yeah. Yay. All right. Where do we start? Well, the history of child sacrifice goes way, way back. Uh, killing our children is something we've done a lot of since Adam fell into sin. But for our purposes today, let's start about 100 years ago with the First World War. A horrible, degrading war that shocked the world. Yeah, as opposed to the daffodil and sunshine-filled wars that came before. Well, World War I was particularly low on daffodils and sunshine, but what it did have was a new form of mechanized slaughter. Machine guns, gas, barbed wire. It was brutal. 20 million deaths, and maybe half of them were civilians, non-combatants. British writer H.G. Wells called it the war to end all wars, but it wasn't, of course. It was a war that opened on to an even more terrible war. 
World War II had worldwide casualties of between 35 to 60 million people, or maybe between 62 to 78 million people, whatever estimate you believe, it was more than World War I. That's not all that makes it a worse war. It was worse because by the end of it, both sides, allies and Axis powers, were intentionally targeting the civilian populations of their enemies, intentionally bombing cities, which in the Western world was off limits to do until that point. So since the Middle Ages, the West held the just war theory, which said, among other things, that soldiers who surrendered were not to be killed, suffering was to be minimized, and indiscriminate killings of non-combatants, i.e. civilians, was prohibited. And especially that last principle just got thrown out the window in the first half of the 20th century. But actually, let me take an even bigger step back and posit why that was. Just war theory and actually everything that's just and good about our world comes out of Jesus's effect on the Western world, an effect that basically held sway, very broadly speaking, until the Enlightenment in the 17th century. It used to be that everybody had to at least pay lip service to justice and mercy and human life being made in God's image. But the Enlightenment ushered in the so-called age of reason, except there was nothing reasonable about it because men replaced the Bible as the primary source of truth with their humanist ideals. So deism and atheism were suddenly big, and the sad journey toward existentialism and relativism began. And ultimately, nihilism. The thing about ideas like just war theory is, why? Why be just in the way you conduct war? If you don't really believe in God and his law and his judgment, those are pretty good questions. And it turns out that apart from God, people don't mind hurting other people if they can get ahead. Which brings us back to the brutal wars of the 20th century. So take the World War II American bombings of Japan as a case in point. The firebombing of Tokyo killed 100,000. The atom bombs we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki killed 105,000. And the Allies also killed or injured a million German citizens through bombing over the course of the war. A grand symphony of civilian death. By the time World War I and World War II had run their course, 76 million people were dead. Nearly 50 million, or maybe more, estimates do vary, were civilians, many of whom were killed intentionally. Somebody once asked the comedian George Carlin what cocaine makes you feel like. He said, it makes you feel like doing more cocaine. Bloodlust is a little like that. Once a man has a taste for it, he's going to want more. And a whole society, a whole civilization can be the same. Once the Western world in the 20th century became a killing machine, it kept killing. Not in wars of nation against nation, but in wars that rulers declared against their own people. In Soviet Russia, Stalin killed more than 60 million people by the estimate of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. In China, Chairman Mao killed between 40 and 100 million people. We don't really know. We don't have good numbers, but we know it was a lot. In Cambodia, Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge killed 2 million civilians. It doesn't sound like much compared to the numbers we've been throwing around, but that was a quarter of the population there. So the point is communism killed more than both world wars did. Ideology devoured millions more than patriotism. And speaking of ideology, the next stage of killing would be in the home through abortion, which is a completely ideologically driven form of killing. In fact, the modern abortion movement has its roots in two big causes de jour of the early 20th century, socialism and eugenics. Right. People like Margaret Sanger, who founded what became known as Planned Parenthood, and coined the term birth control, were virulently anti-family and anti-capitalist. People like Sanger explicitly wanted 
to take the clay that made up society and mold it into another shape. And they especially believed in something that was very popular in the 1920s and 30s as an idea, at least, eugenics. Actually, I have a quote on Sanger's influence right here. Sanger, quote, endorsed the 1927 Buck versus Bell decision in which the Supreme Court ruled that states could forcibly sterilize people deemed unfit without their consent and sometimes without their knowledge. The acceptance of this decision by Sanger and other thought leaders laid the foundation for tens of thousands of people to be sterilized, often against their will. A majority of states would go on to adopt involuntary sterilization policies, leading to more than 60,000 people being sterilized by the states in the 20th century. People with disabilities and people broadly labeled feeble-minded or mentally defective by the state. In the South, so many black women were given unnecessary hysterectomies that it gave rise to the euphemism Mississippi appendectomy. In California, 20,000 people were sterilized between 1909 and 1979, among them a disproportionate number of black, Mexican-American, and Asian-American people. At least 25% of Native American women were sterilized, end quote. We did not actually say where that quote came from. Is that from some conservative website or anti? Oh, oh yeah, it's from the great conservative website, PlannedParenthood.org. Okay, so nobody's trying to hide who Margaret Sanger was. There are things about her they don't even want to own. I suppose a subject like that is really so personal that it's entirely up to the parents to decide. From my view, I believe that there should be no more babies. The rise of abortion rights has always been tied to ideology. Yeah, and the ideology boils down to uh, a lot of things. Women's self-determination, bodily autonomy, a desire to prevent overpopulation, you know, stewardship of resources, quote-unquote. But really, at its heart... At its heart, it's what it's always been. It's religious. It's about sacrifice. It's about offering your children to Satan in exchange for sex or prosperity or whatever. Abortion is a ritual of demon worship in our society today. Our methods are just more hidden. And because a couple of our pet gods are named science and technology, we talk more in terms of science than we do Moloch bringing us rain. About those hidden methods, we're not just talking surgical abortion. We should make that point here, which is hidden, but still ends up with the torn, bloody body of a child. We're also talking about chemical abortion, which is even more hidden. And that's how the slaughter machine really got rolling in the Western world in the middle of the 20th century. Before surgical abortion, there was chemical and hormonal and mechanical abortion, all of which went under the name birth control. Right. We're talking drugs, things like IUDs. Those things have actually been around since before surgical abortion was big. Back in 1959, a physician named Brent Boving, who had ties to Planned Parenthood, quote, argued for moving the date of conception from when fertilization occurs to when implantation occurs, unquote. And that's what the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists adopted formally in 1965 when they issued a bulletin changing the definition of conception from fertilization to implantation. So these birth control methods that stop the baby from attaching, nah, they weren't abortion anymore. They're just contraception. They didn't kill anything or anyone. They only prevented life from beginning. Which is a little bit like saying, I didn't shoot the scuba diver. I, I just prevented him from reaching his oxygen tank. Birth control did such a good job of paving the way for surgical abortions that in 1972, a year before Roe v. Wade passed, the death toll of unborn babies surgically aborted in the United States was already 586,760. Killing babies was already normal. Right, but let's circle back to what we're talking about with Tim, which is how the church has responded to abortion over the years. 
Well, different parts of the church have responded in different ways. The Roman Catholics have always opposed contraception and abortion, and they've never changed on that. They opposed it before Roe, they opposed it afterwards. But Protestant Christians are a different, lamer sort of story. Well, Protestants seemed blind or willing to act blind to what birth control and abortion represented. They went along with the pagans and letting abortifacient birth control into their homes and just making it the norm. We're not talking liberal Protestants. We're talking evangelicals, you know, the conservatives. Like you said, Tim, they accepted Roe v. Wade as the law of the land. They didn't, you know, protest. No, they didn't say much of anything about the killing until, as Tim alluded to, they began to be awakened in 1979 by Francis Schaeffer and C. Everett Koop's book, Whatever Happened to the Human Race. And because of their work, we conservative Protestants learned to oppose surgical abortions, and we still do. But it took six years from Roe v. Wade to Schaefer and Coop's book in 1979. Okay, and so my question for you, Tim, is why is that? I mean, why were evangelicals so unprepared for this? Well, I think part of the issue was the inability of evangelicals to escape sacramentalism. Okay, so if we're defining sacraments, I guess, as rites or acts or rituals that you think save you, Aren't Protestant evangelicals opposed to that sort of thing? Like, the Catholics are the ones with all the rituals. We just believe in Jesus. What was it about modern evangelicals that made them sacramental, so to speak, at the time? Their religion was such a pro forma, ceremonial, ritualistic, tepid, superficial thing. I really think that it would be helpful to think in terms of Billy Graham Crusade and the Sinner's Prayer and Campus Crusade and the Four Spiritual Laws and all of evangelicalism is a way of producing a new sacrament, which is the prayer to receive Jesus, the Sinner's Prayer. I'm going to ask you to get up out of your seat right now, hundreds of you from everywhere, as we've seen every night. Get up out of your seat and come and stand in front and say by coming... I want to come to the cross by faith tonight, and I want my sins forgiven. I want to know that I have eternal life. I want to know I'm going to heaven. You get up and come right now, quickly, and stand here. If you're with friends or relatives, they'll wait. And after you've come, I'm going to say a word to you and have a prayer with you. And we'll give you some literature to help you in your Christian life, and then you can go and join your friends. But I'm going to ask no one to leave the stadium now. At this holy moment, everyone in an attitude of prayer, as people are already coming, you get up and come right now, too. God is calling you by name. Jesus is looking in your direction, and he knows your heart. And it functions largely in the same way that baptism has for most of the church through the centuries, that by the thing itself, you become justified. You're regenerate. You do the thing. And so evangelicalism has a reputation as being matters of the heart, of having a personal relationship with Jesus, as being somewhat analogous to all the history of the church where true faith has become living, okay? But it is largely undeserved. And I know that people are going to have a fit with me saying this, but I was there. I was in church. My parents and my wife's parents all went to Wheaton. It's Campus Crusade, it's InterVarsity, it's all those leaders, all that movement were what my wife and I grew up. We knew it intimately. We knew the parents, we knew the leaders, the owners of the organizations, we knew their children, we knew their churches. 
There was absolutely no church discipline at College Church in Wheaton. And so the superficiality, and it wasn't that people didn't read their Bibles and didn't memorize scripture and didn't have a conscience, but everything was really conformism. Like the church I grew up in, my father was never allowed to join until very near the end of his life because he refused to sign their pledge that he wouldn't dance, he wouldn't go to a movie, he wouldn't drink, he wouldn't belong to a secret society. I forget what it all was. And he taught the main Sunday school class at all. <laughs> and, and when they were short elders at the church, they would ask my dad to come up and serve communion, but they wouldn't let him join. Because he said, no, I'm not going to sign a pledge. We never had alcohol in the house. And so you have to view abortion in that context where everything is about the sinner's prayer, reading the Bible, having a personal relationship with Jesus, and no church discipline. And one other thing, every single sermon, it did not matter the text. The text was John 3.16. But there was no real understanding of holiness. Or repentance or sanctification, etc. So now bring abortion and birth control into that. And it's like they've already done their agreement with holiness. They don't go to movies. They all had televisions. They don't drink. And they had no ability to even think about the significance of sexuality, of the womb, of breasts, of making love, of the propagation of a godly seed. They had habits, and their habit was to marry women and to feel yuck about sodomy, but they had no doctrine. They had no ability to think and to pray and to study and to preach on anything other than a very superficial sacramentalism. And the sacrament wasn't infant baptism. The sacrament was prayers to receive Jesus in a personal relationship with Jesus. So why were the Catholics ahead of us? I don't know, but what I have always believed is that by virtue of their fear of God, Roman Catholics have always taken ethics and moral theology seriously. I think part of it, too, is the Roman Catholic sacramentalism is an embodied one, and evangelical sacramentalism is all disembodied and spiritual. And so the Roman Catholics are actually very tuned and always have been very tuned in to the body. Yeah the physicality of the mass, it becomes Jesus's, you know, transubstantiation, it becomes Jesus's body and blood. Everything is physical and has a physicality to it that they're very sensitive to that sort of thing. And all the evangelicals listening to Tim talk, it, we've seen this before and we've had to deal with it in ourselves and in our churches. It's all ethereal. It's all out in the air. It's a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual sacrament, but it's a decision, it's the will, it's the heart, it's all these things that never actually connects to my hands, my feet, my body, my obedience, my posture, anything like that. Yeah, so in a weird way, it seems like the Catholics, they have this rigid, bad sacramentalism that sort of protected them from abortion propaganda. But our, you know, evangelical sacramentalism... (laughs) was the kind that didn't protect us and left us just vulnerable to believing all those lies. Well, there you go. We kind of answered the question. I mean, that's how you get to the world we made.
To support the world we made and the writing and speaking of Tim Bailey, please give at patreon.com forward slash out of our minds. To support Warhorn Media more generally, you can make a tax-deductible donation at warhornmedia.com forward slash give. And don't forget to rate and review, subscribe and share. Thanks and God bless. 